Welcome back to our study on the kingdom of God. We've spent the last four weeks or so looking at uh, the parables of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. And so there may be a few that may have been in the other gospels that we didn't get to, but we're going to move on this evening and begin to look at some other aspects of the kingdom in the teaching of Christ. Particularly, uh, we'll be in Matthew again this evening. Uh, ultimately, we will end up in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, though we're going to look at some other passages briefly before we get there um, uh, in some of the other Gospels and throughout the New Testament. Uh, the topic this evening is looking at the kingdom of God and, and asking this question uh, regarding the nature of the kingdom. And we've seen this already in some of the parables we've looked at, uh, that the kingdom is not like other kingdoms of this world. Uh, not at this particular time, uh, at least, that the kingdom we saw in some of the parables uh, comes internally in the heart, uh, starts in small ways, and will eventually grow uh, into that glorious uh, eschatological kingdom of majesty and might, uh, which the Jews were expecting uh, when Christ began to preach about the kingdom. But that's not how the kingdom came to begin with. And so I want to discuss, start by discussing the spirituality of the kingdom, and then we'll look at some of the aspects of the kingdom as it is now on earth, and then we'll look at uh, the distinction between the kingdom now and what it will be then, and then we will close by looking at the Beatitudes there in the Sermon on the Mount and talking about the citizenship of the kingdom. So as we look at the spirituality of the kingdom, we'll start with John chapter 18, uh, and here, uh, this is near the end of Jesus' public ministry, and he has been taken before uh, Pilate and is being questioned by Pilate. And, of course, he has been accused uh, by the Jews of being a rabble-rouser, of being someone who is stirring up the people against Caesar. And so that's why Pilate would have an interest in this. Uh, and so Pilate uh, asks him... Uh, why have they delivered you over to me? What have you done that has caused your own people to deliver you over to a Roman governor? And then Jesus, in verse 36 of John 18, answers. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then, of course, we have Pilate's uh, postmodern question here 2,000 years ago asking him, uh, What is truth? But the point of reading this passage at this point is, is that Christ explicitly says uh, that at this time his kingdom is not of this world. It is uh, the kingdom of heaven uh, as we've been referring to it throughout the Gospel of Matthew. So what does it mean that his kingdom is not of this world? He goes on to say that he is a king, that Pilate has rightly said that he is a king. And so uh, a king has to have a kingdom. Christ has a kingdom. He has a people uh, that are his people over which he rules, but his kingdom is not 
of this world. And so what, what is the difference? What makes it uh, different from kingdoms of this world? Well, if we think about in Jewish thought, and we go back to the book of Daniel again, uh, Daniel uh, has visions of various kingdoms of this world uh, that would arise over time. Uh, so his visions are foreseeing kingdoms that will come. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this vision. In verse 2, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirred, stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. And then he goes on to describe these beasts, each representing a different kingdom of the world. John, when he writes uh, the Revelation, his apocalyptic view here of the end in Revelation verse chapter 13, he likewise uh, uses this same idea saying, then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. And then he goes on uh, to describe in more detail and most people would agree that this is representative, again, of kingdoms of this world. And you'll notice that in both Daniel and Revelation, the kingdoms of this world are pictured as rising out of the sea. Uh, And so the kingdoms of this world come out of this world, and the sea then represents uh, the, the chaos of man and rebellion against God, which is probably one reason that the new heavens and the new earth were told that there would be no more sea. Because the sea is pictured for us as the source of the kingdoms of this world that would strive against God. Uh, But Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Uh, His kingdom is not uh, in rebellion against God, for he is God. His kingdom is not like the other kingdoms of this world in a number of different ways. And one of these particularly is that in Revelation, when John uh, pictures the kingdom actually coming in its fullness. He says in chapter 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So when John sees the kingdom coming in its fullness, it comes down from heaven rather than up from the sea. So you can see the contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ. Christ's kingdom comes down from heaven. It's a heavenly kingdom that descends to earth. Uh, Its initial descent comes with Christ ascending, taking on flesh, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom is here. And then uh, we'll see that as he sends his spirit and establishes his church, there becomes a visible manifestation of the kingdom. But in the end, we wait expectantly for the coming, the consummation of the, the final kingdom in its majesty that will come down from heaven from God, unlike the kingdoms of this world that arise out of the chaos of man's sin. So Christ's kingdom is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom of heaven. Uh, And so one of the things that distinguishes uh, it from the kingdoms of this earth is in Luke 17, beginning in verse 20, 
Christ, we read this, and it says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Now, the kingdom of God being within us is a concept we've already talked about, uh, but here Christ is saying that the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. And what he means is that it doesn't come with the visible signs of pomp and, and glory and circumstance that, visible, that earthly kingdoms uh, would come with. Right? It comes quietly in the hearts of believers as they are transformed from the inside out. Uh, Calvin, commenting on this, said, They are greatly mistaken who seek with the eyes of the flesh the kingdom of God, which is in no respect carnal or earthly, for it is nothing else than the inward and spiritual renewal of the soul. And we would agree with that with the caveat that we understand Calvin is talking about the kingdom as it is on earth now and not as it will be uh, when it comes in its fullness. But the kingdom uh, does not have the visible signs of pomp and circumstance that we see in earthly kingdoms, whether that is a king being uh, crowned in Britain or whether that is the president walking out on a tarmac with hail to the chief being played and people standing at salute. Like We can see visible signs of these earthly kingdoms. We can't see the kingdom of heaven with our eyes in that way. So in Acts chapter 1, the disciples ask Jesus about the kingdom. Uh, and in Acts chapter 1, Uh, Jesus is there with them after his resurrection, before he ascends into heaven. And it says in verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so they're still thinking in these earthly terms, wanting to know, will the kingdom be restored as it was under David and Solomon, that sort of a thing. And he said to them in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So he doesn't say, I'm not ever going to restore the kingdom. He says, it's not for you to know when that will happen in that way. But then he goes on to say, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that is said in connection with their question about the restoration of the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. So we would understand that Jesus is saying here that the kingdom will come in its fullness at some point, and it's not given to us to know when that will happen. We don't know when he will return to do that, but we do know that the kingdom comes in some sense when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells his church, the church being a visible uh, manifestation of the kingdom. Now, we would also need to clarify the church is not the kingdom, right? The two are not equivalent, but the church is inseparable from the kingdom. Uh, It is uh, the visible aspects of the kingdom on earth now. If we flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, uh, Paul writes and says, uh, 
Well, we'll back up and read a little bit more to get some context. Beginning in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's using the language of citizens as talking about a nation or a kingdom. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So uh, the kingdom is at this time being built. It is being established as the church is built in the world. It's not completed yet. The kingdom will come uh, in the end when Christ returns in judgment. Uh, It is the dwelling place. The church is this part of the kingdom is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth. Uh, And so we think about this in relation to a kingdom. If you have a kingdom and you have a king, where does the king dwell? He dwells in the palace, in the capital city of the kingdom. Wherever the king dwells is the capital city, right? Well, The church is the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so the church itself uh, is pictured for us as the capital city, so to speak, of this kingdom uh, as it is here on earth. And in the end, of course, uh, the church itself is pictured for us as the capital city of the kingdom. Uh, In Revelation 21, which we've already read, but John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. That's the capital city of the kingdom. And later in verses 9 and 10, uh, he says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like the most precious stone. So, the holy city is the lamb is the the bride of the lamb which we know from other texts of scripture Ephesians 5 uh, to be the church the church is the bride of Christ uh, who is the lamb of god so the church is pictured as the capital city uh, as the the dwelling place the the palace the royal palace of the king as it were uh, and so if that is the church for us, then uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, summarizing some of Calvin's teaching on this, says that it is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. So the kingdom itself is not visible to the eyes, uh, to our physical eyes at this time, but the church is here on earth, and so it's the church's task to make that invisible kingdom visible. Uh, that we might think of the church in this way, that it is uh, an outpost or the vanguard of the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom has come. It hasn't come in its fullness, but it has come in one sense in the hearts and minds of those who have been born anew uh, as citizens of this heavenly kingdom and are being transformed, and they find themselves as members of uh, the church on earth. And so as Paul uh, speaks to the church In Philippi, he writes these words in Philippians 3, saying, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which 
he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So even as the church represents the kingdom as some sort of outpost or vanguard of the kingdom, uh, our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. And so we are eagerly waiting for the, the bridegroom to come, just as was pictured in Christ's parable that we looked at last week of the, the uh, virgins uh, waiting the arrival of the bridegroom. So uh, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven living here on earth in a visible outpost of the kingdom known as the church, eagerly waiting for that day when Christ will come and transform us uh, so that we might live in this, the kingdom forever. Uh, so Christ reigns in his church, and we long for him to be with us physically and reigning uh, physically present with us. Uh, and so as, as Paul continues to teach the churches and and write to the various churches uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, he says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corruption. Uh, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And he goes on to discuss this. So uh, we must be transformed. We must be changed Uh, These bodies, these sinful bodies that we inhabit now must take on incorruptible flesh uh, before we are allowed to inherit the kingdom. But this language of inheriting the kingdom is used repeatedly throughout Paul's letters uh, and teaches us that there is some aspect of the kingdom yet to come which we are to look forward to uh, and long for. Jesus tells us uh, in Matthew chapter 6 verse 10 as he's teaching us how to pray that one of the things that we are to pray for is that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, of course, that uh, is a description of what would happen in the kingdom if God, Christ, who is the king, uh, were here. His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're to pray for that, pray for the coming of the kingdom. We are to long for it. We see that pictured for us in uh, Revelation chapter 22, uh, where, where we're, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So we're to inherit the kingdom in the future. We are to pray for it to come. We are to long for it to come. Uh, So the kingdom is here now in a spiritual sense in the church, but we are to long for, pray for, and anticipate the final coming of the kingdom in its fullness. So let's discuss uh, this substance of the kingdom as it is now in the church. In Hebrews chapter 12, and this is a passage that we have looked at before, but writing to believers, he says, but you have, that is, those who are still in the flesh, who believe in Christ, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So the visible church, those who are alive in the flesh still, have come to be united to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the invisible church. And so we understand from this that most of the citizens of the kingdom are in heaven right now. They're not on earth. 
There are citizens of the kingdom of heaven on earth now. That includes us. But most of the citizens of the kingdom are in heaven. They are those elect angels. They are the souls of just men. The spirits of just men made perfect. uh, That sort of thing. Uh, Van Drunen in his book on the kingdom says this. He says, the church is the only institution or community in the present world that can be identified with the kingdom proclaimed by Christ. So, writing to the church in the flesh, the author of Hebrews says, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the heavenly kingdom. We can't say that about any other institution on earth. We can't say that about the civil government. We can't say that about the United States of America. We can't say that even about the family. There are plenty of families on earth who have not come to the invisible kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Only the church has that association with the kingdom. Christ preached the kingdom when he came. He proclaimed the coming of the kingdom And he established the church. He didn't establish any other institutions while he was on earth. He established the church. And so only the church has this association with the king and his kingdom. The church is the earthly entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The church is a community of the citizens of heaven living on earth now. That, That is what the church is. In Colossians... Chapter 3, Paul tells the believers there in Colossae, chapter 3, verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the life of the world to come, the life of the coming kingdom, defines who we are now as the church. Uh, So we are to set our minds on the things that are above, the things that are to come in the future kingdom, uh, particularly on our king, Christ, who is seated uh, in the heavenly places. Christ rules as the king of his kingdom, uh, and he rules in our lives, right? He rules over those who are the citizens of the kingdom uh, in all aspects of our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we are told, uh, we'll start in verse 4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So the weapons of our warfare are not of this earth, just like the kingdom is not of this earth. Uh, But he says we are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. No king in the world, in any kingdom in the world, can demand that sort of obedience from his subjects. Only Christ can demand the obedience of our thoughts. Uh, He alone is the Lord of the conscience, as we have seen in previous studies. And so no other kingdom on earth uh, has the authority to demand that of its citizens. Christ, of course, summarizing uh, 
the law of the Old Testament, the moral law, the Ten Commandments for us, says the summary of them is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. So if we are to love God uh, with our heart, our soul, and our mind, uh, in another passage it adds, with all your strength, that means that Christ uh, is the Lord, the King over all of who we are. Our, our heart's desires, our affections, uh, our thoughts, as we just saw in Second Corinthians, but also of our actions as well. So Christ rules in his people. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, we are told that we are become being freed from sin. We have become slaves to Christ. And he says in chapter 6, verse 17, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So we, as citizens of the, the kingdom of heaven, have been freed from our bondage to sin, but now we have become subject to Christ our Lord and, and to obey him from our hearts uh, to live righteously as he would have us to live. So Christ rules over the citizens of the kingdom, even those who are alive on the earth now, uh, but he rules over believers from the inside out, whereas earthly kingdoms rule over their subjects from the outside only, and they cannot rule internally the way Christ does. But Christ also rules in his church, uh, the only institution on earth which is so closely associated with the kingdom, and Christ rules in his church. In Colossians 1.18 it says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. So Christ is the head of the church, our confession uh, in the chapter about the church says that Christ alone is the head and the Pope can't be the head of the church as he claims to be. No uh, mega church pastor can be the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. He is the king and the church is part of his kingdom and so he alone uh, rules over it. In Ephesians chapter 1, using the same sort of language but with an interesting addition, uh, Paul says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. So Christ isn't just the head over his church. He is the head over all things to his church. Uh, all authority has been given to him, as he says in Matthew 28, not just in the church, but all authority has been given to him. So in Ephesians 5, 23, uh, he makes the point that Christ is not only the head but also the Savior uh, of the church. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church and is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands. So Christ is the head of the church. He rules. It is his authority which establishes the church. His authority that is delegated to the church, uh, delegated to the church for uh, binding and loosing the keys of the kingdom, as we've discussed in the past. It is his authority that is delegated to the ministers of the church, uh, elders and do not have authority that comes from themselves, but only that which has been delegated to them by Christ. Uh, in the, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, 
Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, that's interesting. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Christ, who is the head of the church, who reigns and rules in the hearts and minds of believers and who rules in his church. And he says, because all authority is his, his church is then to go and make disciples. He doesn't say his church is to go and take over the nations, but rather his church is to go and make disciples among the nations and then teach those disciples to obey Christ as his subjects. Uh, So the church is really a picture of what is to come when Christ returns as king and actually does reign over all things uh, directly. But right now the the church is a picture of that with Christ as our head, as our king, and us living in obedience to him. Of course, Revelation chapter 19 verse 15 says that Christ will rule over all the nations with a rod of iron. He will, when he returns, uh, do such a thing. But at this time, uh, he doesn't in that way. But does he rule over the nations even now? Well, yes, he does. Proverbs 21, verse 1, tells us that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So Christ does rule over the nations now, uh, but he rules through the intermediary uh, act of earthly kings, but they are ruled according to his uh, providential sovereignty over all things. But at once, some point in the future, when Christ does return to establish uh, his kingdom, even the kingdoms of the earth then will become his directly. It says in Revelations eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we look forward to that day when Christ will come to establish the kingdom in its fullness, where he will rule directly over the nations of this world. But now uh, he rules all things providentially. One day he will rule all things directly. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 to the Beatitudes and look now at the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The believers who are on earth now, who are members of the church, we are, our citizenship is in heaven. We are members of this heavenly kingdom. And so what does that look like? Who are uh, the, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Well, as Christ begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount, He begins with these Beatitudes in chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 3 through 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
So you can see verse 3 and verse 10 kind of bookend that with this statement, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so I would argue that everything in between those are all describing the same group of people. We're not describing disparate groups of people, but we are describing those uh, to whom the kingdom belongs, those who belong to the kingdom. So he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, like so much of the New Testament, there is Old Testament language being used here. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 66, uh, the prophet writes, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. So the poor in spirit are those who are afflicted and oppressed, possibly, but repent. They are humble before God. They are repentant before God. Uh, To be poor in spirit means to know our own spiritual need, to understand our need for Christ to redeem us. It means to obey God. King Jesus. Uh, Isaiah goes on in the next two verses to describe those who are not poor and of a contrite spirit. He says, he who kills a bull is as if he slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is as if he breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering as if he offers swine's blood. He who burns incense as if he blesses an idol. Just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. So will I choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So in contrast to the one who is poor in spirit, who is contrite and humble before God, we have those who are uh, arrogant. They've chosen their own way rather than God's way. They are delighting in things that are an abomination to God. They are hypocrites. Uh, They're sacrificing a lamb, but they're doing it in such a way that it's as if they've broken a dog's neck. Uh, They're they're not taking these sacrifices to heart. It's just an outward action, uh, and they're actually hypocrites. Matthew Henry comments and says, uh, it, is to come, it is to come off from, all, that being poor in spirit, is to come off from all confidence in our own righteousness and strength, that we may depend only upon the merit of Christ for our justification and the spirit and grace of Christ for our sanctification. So those who are depending upon their own righteousness, uh, thinking that they can be good enough, uh, are not poor in spirit. They're not recognizing the poverty of their own spiritual righteousness and their need for Christ. Next, he says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, To mourn means to lament, uh, to be in sorrow. Uh, We are told in In Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, the next time that this word is used, uh, is used in Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, and Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
so in this instance, he's talking about mourning uh, the fact that Christ is not returned, that he has ascended into heaven and we're longing for him to return. Uh, the next time it's used in the New Testament is in Mark chapter 16, verse 10, uh, when one of the women, having seen the risen Christ, comes and tells those who are mourning at his death that he has risen. Uh, so uh, it is to lament for the return of the king. Uh, it is, and he says that they will be comforted. Uh, they will be comforted at the coming of the kingdom. In verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, to be meek means uh, to be not easily provoked. Uh, it means to be one who endures with patience and long-suffering uh, offense. It means to enjoy a peaceful life in uh, opposition to a restless life uh, and, and the promise of the world to come. Uh, so those who are meek, those who uh, long suffer, endure, don't take offense, uh, those will inherit the earth. They will inherit the world to come in its fullness. In verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, now, none of us likely know what it means to hunger and thirst in any significant way. We may get hungry at the end of a long day, but uh, we're, we've not suffered starvation uh, and famine, uh, and certainly there are those who have. But here, the idea is that we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, uh, that we're longing for it, greatly desiring it as something that we lack and desperately need. And, of course, righteousness would be... Uh, sinlessness, godliness, to, to live rightly before God. And so we're looking with longing for the day of perfection, not desiring the things of this world, but setting our minds and our hearts on the things above, longing for the return of Christ when we will be transformed completely, glorified uh, into his likeness uh, so that we can walk before him in righteousness for eternity. In verse 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, to be merciful is to pity someone who is in need, uh, who is wretched. It is to show compassion to someone who is in distress, which of course means not being self-absorbed. It means thinking of others, being concerned about the good of others, uh, which is how we are instructed to live as believers, especially in regards to our brothers and sisters in the church. In verse 8, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, to be pure in heart means to be Christ-like. Uh, if we go back to the Psalms, we get an interesting picture of the pure in heart. Psalm 15, which is only five verses, reads this way, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor. Nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money to, at usury nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So to answer the question in verse 1, who may dwell in your holy hill? None of us. We can't live up to this. Only Christ can. And so those who are pure in heart are those who are being transformed into the image of Christ. Uh, 
Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 asks a similar question uh, and says that it is those who are not idolaters. It says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand at his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. So, uh, not a hypocrite, one who has pure hands uh, and an impure heart is a hypocrite. Right? We can have somebody who puts on a show of religion. They may look like on the outward uh, aspects of it that they have pure hands, but in their heart uh, they are not. But Christ completely fulfills that and keeps that for us, and so it is his uh, righteousness that we're longing for, uh, as it was said in verse 6. And so to be pure in heart is to long to be like Christ. And Psalm chapter 51, David's prayer of repentance after his sin uh, with Bathsheba. He says in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So how are we to be pure at heart? Well, only God can do that. We are to be washed and purified by God so that we can stand before him uh, without spot or blemish, as Paul says in Ephesians in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, we're told, well, beginning of verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So it's Christ's blood uh, that purifies us, that cleanses us, so that we are pure of heart. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So if we are to be pure in heart, we must come before God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness uh, and pleading only the blood of Christ that makes us clean from our sin. In verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers, to be a peacemaker is not only to avoid strife in your own life, but to promote peace among others. In Romans 15, verse 33, we're told that God is a God of peace, and in Romans 5.1, we're told that we obtain peace with God through Jesus Christ. So a peacemaker is someone who is striving to promote peace amongst other people, much as Christ cre brought us to peace with God. So a peacemaker is called the sons of God because they're acting in a Christ-like way. In verse 10, he then says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So to be persecuted, uh, obviously in America we do not suffer the kind of persecution that believers have in other parts of the globe, uh, even today. But we do suffer persecution. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So persecution 
may be physical persecution and death, but it also involves being reviled or having evil things falsely said about us. Uh, and so we can certainly suffer that sort of persecution uh, even today here in America. But notice that he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in verse uh, 11, he says, for my sake. Uh, not being persecuted for our own sin, our own foolishness, but for Christ's sake. Because we are his followers. Because we are uh, attempting to live uh, with a pure heart before God. If we are persecuted for the sake of the gospel, for the name of Christ, then we're suffering true persecution. If we're persecuted for our own foolishness, uh, then that's a different story altogether. But those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake or for Christ's name, uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So who are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven? They are those who are in Christ, who are being transformed, as Paul says in Second Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So those who are experiencing that transformation, that sanctification, and looking forward uh, to that day of glorification, those are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. How does this happen? Well, in John chapter 3, as Jesus talks with Nicodemus by night, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, Entering the kingdom of God is by means of supernatural birth, by means of being born again of the Spirit. Uh, so you might say, uh, we talk about natural born citizens of a kingdom here on earth. Uh, we might say that we are supernatural born citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It is only by uh, the Spirit's work in our hearts to give us a new life, uh, to give us a new heart, that we are reborn and become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, uh, Peter says, speaking to the church, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, so those who are citizens of this holy nation of the kingdom of heaven have been chosen by God uh, to be his people. And so Abraham Booth, a particular Baptist uh, pastor in the 1700s in England, uh, was wrote a very excellent, although somewhat lengthy, uh, treatment on the kingdom of God, particularly as it related to the idea of a state church. Uh, you know, the church in England, we had the Anglican church, uh, you had the Scottish Presbyterians establishing national churches, but you had the Baptists who were saying, we shouldn't have a national church. So Abraham Booth wrote uh, this treatise against the Anglican church there in England. And in describing the kingdom, he wrote this, and I'm going to close with this quote because I think it very well summarizes what we've just seen here in the Beatitudes. He said this, It is faith in Christ and obedience to him, love to God and benevolence to man, humility, patience, and resignation, spirituality, and heavenly mindedness, which adorn the subjects of our Lord's kingdom, which distinguish them from the children of this world. 
So that is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.